so glad that you're here today. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. We're going to look through this entire chapter, uh, or not entire chapter, I should say, up through verse 28. And as you're doing that, let me also say this, because I would be remiss and completely out of touch Uh, If I uh, didn't state the obvious, that this has been quite a crazy week, hasn't it? And I'm not sure, it doesn't look like it's going to be any less crazy of a week this coming week. And so how do we uh, face that as people who are followers of Jesus Christ? And so let me just speak to that for just a second. Um, You know, as I thought about coming in here today and thinking about each of you that would gather in this room this morning, as I thought about you who are watching online, as I thought about those of you who may be listening to this or watching this later on during the week, I really think there's three types of people that are listening to me this morning, and three types of people that have God's word before them today. So let me, let me just describe these three types of people, and we all fall into one of these categories. First of all, you're more hopeful today, maybe this is you, you're more hopeful today than you were yesterday uh, because uh, Joe Biden was announced last night as president-elect, and so you're more hopeful today than you were yesterday, and and that's that's you. Uh, maybe, Maybe we have people that fall under this category. You're less hopeful today than you were yesterday because Donald Trump was not announced last night as president for a second term, and so... That's you today. And if that's you, you just need to embrace it if you're one of those. But can I say this about this third group of people? Because here's what you need to know, coming from me as your lead pastor that's been given that responsibility by the Lord that I don't take lightly, that this is the type of people that we need to be. That we are as hopeful yesterday as we are today. Just as hopeful. Because we are continuing to look to Jesus as our living hope. That is where every follower of Jesus Christ needs to be. Maybe even a better way to say it is that's where the Lord wants you to be. That is the frame by which everything else that happens in our life is to be viewed through. That's the frame. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, we just sang about living hope, but can I read this to you? Can I just encourage you? Some of us in this room, all of us, let me not say some of us, all of us, I don't care what group of people you may be today, all of us, if we don't have this memorized, ought to write this on a note card, ought to put this on our phone, whatever it is, put it on the fridge, put it on the mirror, put it on the dashboard, this passage of scripture, get ready, write it down, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, and let's... Allow this to be our frame. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, his, he, Jesus, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You ought to underline those two words. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four and five can be given to, cannot be given to you by any politician. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Can I just say 
that this is not a cop-out. I came across this picture on social media. Some of you may have seen it, others of you may have not. I thought this was a good picture. Some of us need to pull out our phones right now and take a snapshot of that picture and put it on your desktop computer or whatever else you look at all the time. This isn't a cop-out, what I'm saying. It's not a cop-out. I've read by some that us reminding ourselves that Jesus is king, that he's our living hope, is somehow us being insensitive to how that has been uh, misused uh, in our nation's history, and rightfully so. But can I just encourage you something? I can be up here and misuse or take a passage of scripture out of context, but it doesn't make the truth of God's word any less valid. And so this statement that we remind ourselves of today that needs to be the frame by which we see everything, regardless of whether it's been misused or misinterpreted or manipulated, doesn't change the reality that that is how we need to view life. Listen to me. I'm all about us voting. I hope that you voted. I hope that you took a ballot and maybe you didn't take it in there literally, but you basically voted with a ballot and a Bible. That's the, Lord, the way the Lord wants. I hope that you did that. I think we need to be engaged in our community. I thank the Lord for people who are followers of Jesus Christ that are in the government, all of that. We need to engage in that and everything. But listen to me, we have a living hope. And here's what I know. I've experienced Christ. Some of you are in a crisis of belief right now because you were praying and you're praying and praying for whichever camp you have fallen into. And you're like, man, that passage of scripture doesn't help me right now. Can I just tell you that though, though that's not necessarily how I'm viewing the election, I've been there in life with other things. And what I'm encouraging you with, regardless of whatever we face in the next week, Lord, I hope before the end of the year that we are taking time to allow God's word to minister to our soul and not viewing it as some quick fix, but rather allowing it to speak to areas that we needed to speak to. So just to let you know, that's not my message this morning. Gray's not coming up right now. But at the same time, I want to encourage you with that. Here's why we didn't teach a message this morning on specifically that. Because little did I know when I was thinking about what we needed to call this series and walking through the book of Judges this morning, or this, this fall, little did I know how applicable that title would be. Broken people, faithful God. If you're new with us, that is the series that we are in. We're walking through the book of Judges. And aren't we reminded in 2020, couldn't we say that? Like, I could actually say that was a theme for me. That's the theme. That when I look back, 2020 is God is faithful. And so we've been walking through this book verse by verse, looking at that reality through the children of Israel, that even though they're broken, even though they reveal their brokenness through their sin, through their idolatry, praise the Lord that God is faithful in spite of that. So here's the title of the message this morning. Be on guard. That's what the Lord wants you to be today. He wants you to be on guard. And here's the idea that I want us to get this morning from these 28 verses that we're gonna look at. That often, often, not always, but often the greatest struggles come after the greatest victories. 
We're going to see in this passage of scripture in verses 1 through 28 that Gideon, as we looked at last week, has just defeated the Midianite army, 135,000 plus soldiers with 300 men, just accomplished this amazing victory that no one would have said was humanly possible, that God supernaturally gave them the victory, gave them the ability to overcome that with those tremendous odds. But what we're going to see now in chapter 8 is you don't necessarily see a battle that takes place from their enemy, but you actually see an internal battle that takes place within the tribes of Israel. And I think what that shows us today is that reality that I just gave you, that often the greatest struggles come after the greatest victories. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three struggles that can take place. They're not exhaust. This isn't exhaustive. But three struggles that I see take place in this passage of Scripture that we can say, man, these struggles can take place after I just see the Lord accomplish something that's supernatural. And whether or not you're like, well, I haven't seen a great victory in my life happen just yet. Regardless of where you may be this morning, you need to take these things to heart because chances are there will come a time in your life where you will need to go to a passage of scripture like this to say, Lord, how do I deal with these certain things that come into my life that really have come out of left field? How do I deal with them? How do I encounter them? And we're gonna see that even some of these struggles apply to what we are living in right now during this time of the year in 2020. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray and I want, to take, I want you to take whatever you're struggling with, whatever it is, and I want you to just say this, Lord, would I have ears to hear what you want to speak to the struggle that I'm experiencing? Can we do that this morning? Let's go to him. God, we're here today to hear from you. Or the amazing thing about your word is that when, as we say it, say it here at this church, this church family, when your word is open, your mouth is open. And so God, whatever we're struggling with today, may we just lay that before your word today and have an anticipation and assurance that you're gonna speak to that struggle today. So, Lord, would you help us to approach your word humbly? Would you help us to approach it uh, with, a, with an aspect of teachability and humility so that we can walk out of here saying, man, I heard from the Lord today, but I just didn't hear. I'm going to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Let's get into this passage of Scripture. It says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, him being Gideon, so remember, this is after... Um, after Midian has been defeated with the pitchers and the torches and the horns that they blew, what is this that you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him, Gideon, fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes harvest of Abizer? And God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. So let me explain uh, this 
really all 28 verses, but specifically these three verses, because it can be a little confusing if you read through it before and you're following along in our reading plan that you can access on our website. So these three verses most likely took place after verse 17 of chapter 8. So it's just like one of those movies, right, where you see something that happens in the in the, fu- in the future, and then all of a sudden it backtracks. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. And so this, this disagreement that's happening with these men of Ephraim, which was the tribe of Israel, actually takes place after uh, some of the battle that's described in verses 4 through 17 take place. And so here's what's happening. So Ephraim has already captured these two individuals, Oreb and Zeb. These were princes. Gideon has already pursued and killed Zeba and Zalman who are the kings of Midian. So the kings of Midian have already been uh, vanquished. The princes of Midian have already been vanquished with the help of Ephraim. And so this dispute evidently happens after all of that has been done. There's this criticism that's taking place. Can I draw your attention once again to the end of verse one where it says, and they, these men of Ephraim, accused him, Gideon, fiercely. Here's the first struggle that can take place after a great victory. Maybe you're experiencing this right now. Here it is. Number one, unmerited criticism from others. That can happen. Like all of a sudden something amazing happens in your life. You've seen God do something amazing. And then don't you always, you always have sometimes those armchair quarterbacks that want to critique how everything was done, right? And so that's what's happening here. These men of Ephraim are upset with Gideon. They're not recognized. Hey, Gideon, they're forgetting the big picture. Gideon, man, this amazing victory has happened under insurmountable odds. Like, like Gideon, it's amazing what the Lord's done through you. But instead, they want to criticize Gideon for what? That they weren't asked to be part of the party. That they weren't asked to help. Now, here's two things you need to understand about criticism that I see from these verses. Number one, criticism is unavoidable when you've been given the responsibility to lead. Like if you have a leadership position, whether it's at work, uh, whether it's with a nonprofit, whether it's in your home, wherever it is, you need to understand that criticism is unavoidable when you've been called to lead. You know why? Because you can't please everyone. Some of you who have been called to lead, have tried to do that, and you know it's an exhausting process. Where literally, this is what your leadership style is this. You've tried this where you're like, which way is the wind blowing? Okay, we're gonna go that way. That's an impossible task. You see this here with Gideon. Here's why Ephraim was upset. They were upset because they were one of the largest tribes of Israel. Second to Judah, they were the most influential, most important, one of the largest tribes second to Judah. We know that Judah eventually would be the tribe by which the kings would come out of. But Ephraim was was the second largest, strongest, most influential tribe. And so when you think about the scenario that Gideon was in where he had 32,000 men, he's told by the Lord to say to those 32,000 men, hey, if you're afraid, you can go on home. 22,000 leave. And then it whittles down all the way to 300 men. So we don't know this for a fact. It doesn't tell us. But if you have one of the mightiest tribes that have come alongside of you, they're not going to probably be crazy with that plan that God gave Gideon. There might be some altercation. 
So evidently, Gideon probably had some type of discernment, some type of wisdom to say, to call Ephraim to come, who thinks of themselves as so strong, probably isn't the best case scenario. So Ephraim's gonna help cleaning up and going after some of the things that couldn't be taken care of. But Ephraim wasn't crazy, crazy about that. You know what gives you strength against criticism? Because you can't be su- surprised by it. Like if you're leading now, you can't be surprised by criticism. And the strength that it takes to overcome criticism rests in this that you were obedient to what the Lord told you to do. Leading according to God's word is oftentimes not the most popular decision. Gideon, leading this army to defeat Midian, was not looked by many, was not looked by the majority as something that was what you would want to do, but Gideon knew that he heard from the Lord and Gideon obeyed, and that's where his strength was found. And that's where you have to rest when criticism is coming at you that is unmerited. It's, no, 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 did the Lord call me to do this? Is this what God's word says? Is this the way God has called me to lead my family? Is this the way God has called me to be an employer at work? Is this what the Lord has called me to have integrity in this decision? And you have to rest that you're being obedient to what the Lord has called you to do. But can I also tell you this about criticism? Criticism is often selfishly motivated. Not always. Sometimes criticism isn't necessarily a bad thing. But criticism can be selfishly motivated. Here's why I say that according to this passage. Because what really Ephraim was upset by is because they weren't called to the party to be involved in defeating Midian, they missed out on benefiting from the spoils that came from that battle. And so really the reason why they were upset, according to this passage of scripture, is because they did not get to benefit from the spoils that the other tribes who were engaged in the battle got to receive because they were a part of the party. And that, in essence, is what irritated them. And often when people criticize something that you've done, there's almost always a personal reason behind their criticism. So how do you respond to it? I don't think you needed to come into Salem Chapel today to be told that criticism comes with leadership, did you? But here's where you need to listen up if you haven't yet. How should we respond to criticism? Look at verse one again. It says, they accused him fiercely. Here's how you respond. You exercise, and I use that word on purpose, humility. Humility is not something that's easily demonstrated. Humility is not your first reaction. Humility has to be exercised. Humility is not just an attitude, it is an action. It has to be exercised. And humility disarms unmerited criticism. You got people hurling accusations at you. You got people wanting to critique what you've done. It may not even make sense, but you're like, no, 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 this is what God's word says. I'm gonna obey it. They, you have them hurling criticism at you. When you exercise humility, you know what you do? You disarm the conversation. Here's why I say that. Look at verse two. Look at what Gideon says. He says to, Ephraim, to the men of Ephraim, what have I done now in comparison with you? 
Like Gaius. He's basically saying, listen, you don't need to convince me you're awesome. You don't need to convince me that you're strong. You don't need to convince me that you're from a mighty tribe. I mean, who am I in comparison with you? Now, can we just bring ourselves back to what Gideon just did? Gideon just defeated over 135,000 men with 300 men who didn't even pick up a sword. Gideon, and many of us, if we were Gideon, we'll be like, bro, where are you coming from shooting this stuff at me? Like, do you not realize what I just did? You need to be giving me some respect. But Gideon doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He exercises humility. I know I'm nothing in comparison to you. He's not being self-deprecating here. He's exercising humility. And when you do that, you automatically take the power out of the person's criticism. See, humility rests in knowing that the Lord is the defender of your motivations and your reputation. Gideon rested in he didn't need to convince anybody of what he just did. Everyone knew. He didn't have to try to defend himself. He was very secure in knowing that the Lord allowed him to do something amazing. He didn't need to defend himself. He didn't need to try to, to build an entourage, to build an audience. No, no, no. He was very secure in what the Lord did, and he understood. No, no, no. The Lord's the defender of my motivations, of my reputation. 1 Peter 5, 6 is a great verse. It's a verse that I promise you, you will continue to be taught until you're with Jesus. It's a verse that I will continue to be taught until I'm with Jesus. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You know what the significant thing of that verse is? Under the mighty hand of God. So here's me, and criticisms may be being hurled at you right now. I don't know what's, maybe this is your struggle. But if I humble myself and place myself under the mighty hand of God, then what happens? All those accusations that are being hurled at me, I am being protected from those because I'm putting myself under the one thing that can protect me. And when I learn to place myself under the mighty hand of God, rather than placing myself over the mighty hand of God, that what begins to happen is I understand that the Lord is the one that is my defender of my reputation, of my motivations, and the same hand that will cover me is the same hand that will lift me up. See, humility is not just an attitude. It's an action. And oftentimes the action in response to unmerited criticism is how you respond with your words. Look at verse three. What does Gideon say? Men of Ephraim, God has given into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. He's like, guys, I'm so thankful that you were able to come in and to clean up and to take care of the princes. I'm so thankful that you did that. I'm so grateful that you did that. You can hear the gratitude in Gideon's words. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Look at their response. Then the anger against him subsided when he said this. In verse one, they're accusing him fiercely. In verse three, the anger's gone. 
Proverbs 15, one, you know this well probably. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know what I've oftentimes said? Uh, My staff knows this, that there's two types of people. People that bring gasoline to a fire or people that bring water to a fire. And oftentimes the water to a fire is your words. Gideon knew how to handle the unmerited criticism. Did it come as a shock? I'm sure it came as a shock. That's why I say oftentimes the greatest struggles come after the greatest victories. Here's a second struggle. Look at verse 4. It says, and Gideon came to the Jordan, crossed over, he and the 300 men. So now we're going back in time, right? Verses 1 through 3 happens after this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Like basically what they're saying is, is Gideon, have you done this already? Well, Gideon knows he hasn't. Verse 7, he's wanting help. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Much different response than verses one through three, right? And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So here's what you need to understand. So this army crosses over the Jordan River. And if you remember in Israel history, and you may not remember this, there was two and a half tribes that were on the... um, on the other side of the Jordan River. And they were, they were kind of not really connected to the other ten and a half tribes. And so Gideon goes over the Jordan River and these men of Succoth are part of the tribe of Gad, which, which was on the other side of the Jordan. So there already relationally were some tensions there. There relationally were, was some distance there. But nevertheless, this tribe of Gad, these men of this tribe of Gad, these rulers in this area called Succoth should have been encouraging to Gideon, should have been helping Gideon. After all, he's uh, uh, relinquishing and, and vanquishing these people that have been oppressing them. But that's not what happens. They don't want to give any soldiers to Gideon. They don't want to help Gideon. And then what's worse is then they get the men of Penuel, who also live in Gad, to feel the same way about Gideon. Why? Because they were skeptical of Gideon's ability. Should Gideon's ability have ever been called into question? Absolutely not. Remember, he's already done an amazing thing. But they're like, you know, Gideon, we're not sure that you're going to be able to take care of those kings. And so if you don't take care of those kings, we want to have a plan B. And if we align with you and you don't take care of those kings, then it could affect us. And so we're just going to kind of sow some division and disunity. Here's a second struggle. I don't know if you're facing this today. Second struggle that oftentimes comes after the greatest victories, and that is unexpected division from others. Division often is subtle. Division often comes, times comes out of nowhere. Now, here's the question that I had when I read these verses. And I wonder if you had the same question, if you've already read them. Why did, here's the question. Why didn't Gideon show to the people of Succoth and Penuel the same kindness that he showed to the men of Ephraim and simply forgive their offenses? 
Like much different reaction, right? Like Gideon's not like, yeah, I'm gonna go find um, a big switch with some thorns on it and I'm just gonna go to town on you. Like you don't see that with the men of Ephraim. Why is there this different response? Well, here's why. Because their offenses were not the same. Ephraim was all concerned about their tribal pride. Like their reputation, after all, they're the second largest tribe, they're the second strongest tribe. Like our reputation is, it might, might be hurt because we weren't called to battle. That's what they were concerned about. Was that sin? Absolutely. But you see it being resolved. The problem with what happens with these men who are of the tribe of Gad is that they were making choices that sought to rebel against the leader that God had put in place, their sin was of division and disunity, and you don't see them ever coming to a place where they acknowledged it. See, criticism from others is one thing, but rebellion against the Lord by causing disunity among his people is quite something else. We need to be on guard against it. And it is subtle. It's a little whisper here, a little whisper there, a little comment here, a little comment there. And it's like a little ember in a dry forest. And if it's not paid attention to and snuffed out, it creates a fire. Listen to me. May it not be lost on us that we need to be on guard, even in this local church, this family of Salem Chapel, to be on guard against disunity. Like, oh, you go to the 11 a.m. service. Here they're not as strict with the mass as the 9 a.m. service. Oh, you still want this election process to go on. See where I'm going? I mean, a lot of times we can allow things that aren't even happening inside of the four walls of this place that the enemy can use to literally cause unexpected division. Let me give you some verses on how serious the Lord considers this. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. I'm not reading all these verses, but in this passage it says, there are six things that the Lord hates. You don't oftentimes find that phrase. But you know what one of them are? It's at the end of verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this to the church at Rome, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deserve, deceive the hearts of the naive. Titus 3, 10 and 11. And for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You know what's interesting about division? is that when someone is seeking division, it's never postured with humility. Ever. It's always postured with pride. My agenda. Do you want to side with my agenda? 
Do you want to side with my plan? Do you want to side with what I see is good for me? And when you begin to hear that and discern that, you need to be aware, uh-oh, division is at work here. Disunity is at work here. And when we give an ear to that, we're actually giving an ear to the plan of the enemy. That's why Gideon dealt with that ruthlessly. Now, I shouldn't need to say this, but I'm going to say it so that no one is mistaken. I cannot be accused. If someone goes with a switch with some thorns on it after someone who's causing division, you've heard me say this. That is not the prescriptive plan to deal with that. Everybody got that? But I think what we can see in this passage of Scripture is Gideon understood the seriousness of it. You know what's a good phrase? When someone is trying to leak it out, and it always happens where, where you, someone like tests the waters. Just throw a little something out there. You know, is this phrase, I don't have ears for that. Let me give you a perfect example. So about six months ago, I got a call on my office phone from a church in another area of the country. And it was, seemed weird. I saw this number come up, and so I answered it, and, and it was someone from this church that obviously will name, re, remain nameless. And, and so uh, they asked me, they're like, hey, um, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yeah, I know them, or I'm familiar with them. And they're like, well, I'm calling because we need some more information on this person because some of us in the church feel like this person is not what our church needs. And, and so we're just needing to find out some more information. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I said, um, are you an elder at the church? No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a concerned person of the church. I was like, okay. I was like, have you gone to your elders to share your concerns with them? No, I haven't. I said, well, let me give you some advice. Little did he know who he was talking to. Let me give you some advice. I said, you need to take your concerns, you need to take it to the elders. And if the elder wants to have a conversation, then he can call me. But I said, I want to encourage you to be very, very careful that you are not sowing division in your church. You know what his response was? Pastor, that was such amazing wisdom. I'm so th glad I called today. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like it went completely the other way. My point in that is this. You need to be on guard. You may be at work. You're not even at church. You may be at work. And you know what I've found when I worked jobs in the marketplace? Is that it was the end thing to do to talk about how bad your boss was in the break room in the teacher's lounge, wherever it was. I mean, he or she could be batting a thousand. He or she could be making you feel amazing. He or she could compliment you all day long. But it was just the end thing to complain. That's a perfect way for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to demonstrate, no, 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 I don't have ears for that. You know what all of a sudden happened? They'll start stop trying to cause division with you. It's a struggle. And Gideon knew it. Here's the third thing and we're done. You're like, well, I really don't struggle with the first thing, criticism from others. Really not feeling that, Johnny, right now. Well, praise God, I'm happy for you. Really not facing much division right now coming at me. Well, praise God, I'm happy for you. Can I encourage you with something? It probably will happen. But maybe this third one will resonate with you. Because in verses 18 through 28, we don't have time to read it, but verses 18 through 22, let me, let me kind of summarize what happens in these verses. Gideon kills the rulers of Midian. He kills the kings. 
And then we come to verse 22, and kind of now we come to the, the battle is over. All the Midianites and their leaders have been defeated. And now we come to verse 22, and look at this. It says, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us. Rule over us. And not just you, but it says you and your son and your grandson also like Gideon, we want to make you our king and we want to make a lineage. Would you rule over us? For you have, why? Because you've saved us from Midian. You've accomplished this amazing victory. 300 men against over 135,000. Like who wouldn't want that person to be their king? Look at Gideon's response, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You ought to underline that phrase, the Lord will rule over you. Now we come to verse 24 and it says, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. So so the things that you've gotten from this battle, hey, let's take those things and what are we going to do with them? Verse 25, And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. Like these Midianites, were so awesome and so amazing and so wealthy and so, so uh, strong. I mean, even their animals wore bling, <laughs> right? I mean, I, it makes me feel like I was in Naples again. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Oprah and all Israel whored after it there. That term doesn't refer to physically, physical immorality. It refers to them worshiping something that shouldn't be worshipped. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Do you see there? So Gideon makes this memorial to testify to what the Lord did in Midian. But here's the problem. Became a snare to Gideon and to his family and really to everyone of Israel, all the tribes there. Verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Here's the third struggle that can take place after a great victory. And this will resonate with all of us this morning. Unacceptable praise from others. When the Lord uses you out of his grace and his mercy to accomplish something profound for him, oftentimes people want to Yield their praise to you. And I think there's two types of praise in these verses, and we'll go through these quickly. First of all, there's what I like to call pedestal praise. Pedestal praise. Where the people say, Gideon, we want you to rule over us, and not just you, but your son and your grandson. We want you to rule. We want to put you on a pedestal. Because you've accomplished something great and we believe you can continue to do that. But here's the problem. Their request was actually a confession of unbelief and the Lord who gave the victory and the Lord who was their hope and the Lord who was their strength. That was the whole reason why God ordained that battle to be won the way that it was. Remember, he didn't allow 32,000 men to do it. Why? Because he knew that Israel would believe that they did it. And it's in our nature, get this, it's in my nature to want to put people on a pedestal. 
It's in your nature to want to make someone king greater than your king Jesus. It's in your nature. And I wonder right now in this political season, in this, in this, in this last, in last week, in this week probably to come, and Lord willing, I'm praying that it will be resolved soon. There is this desire to want to give all of my allegiance to the candidate that I want to be president of the United States, even more so than Jesus Christ, my king, because it's in our nature to want to put someone on a pedestal. And maybe for you, the struggle's not there, but your struggle is you want to be put on a pedestal. You want what's hap- what, what, what you believe is warranted of praise. You want to receive that. You're upset with someone right now because they are giving you the praise that you think you deserve. But what I've found is never has a person stayed on a pedestal for long. Why? Because you were made to receive the glory that God deserves. What was I made to do? I was made to reflect it. Pedestal praise. Be on guard against it. Here's the second thing, nostalgic praise. Because in verse 24 through 27, we already read it. Gideon had good intentions in making this memorial, this ephod. had good intentions. We see all over the Old Testament when Moses crossed the Red Sea with the people of Israel, they made a memorial. When Israel crossed the Jordan River, they made a memorial. You see that all over the Old Testament. They're called to make memorials. Memorials are a good thing. But they were never made to worship. The memorials served to be motivation to trust and have faith and worship the Lord for the future. And some of us live in nostalgia. We're all, I'm thinking about what God did in the past. I'm thinking about what God did through this leader. I'm thinking about what God did through this president. I'm thinking about what God did through this person. And what we're finding is we're living in the past to the point to where we're worshiping it and we're practicing idolatry. We are whoring after something that the Lord never intended us to do. Man, I remember when I was in this location, man, God was good then. God was good when we had this leader. God was good when we had this. God was good when we had that. And what we find ourselves is we are eulogizing the past to the point of fiction. Why? Because we are getting caught up in nostalgic praise. Rather than praise that yes, our memorials motivate that, but man, we're about, Lord, what do you want to do today? What do you want to do tomorrow? Lord, let me look for new opportunities to praise you. So where's your struggle today? Where is it? Is it the criticism piece? You're receiving it and you just don't know how to handle that? Humility. You're giving it unwarranted. It's motivated out of pride. Division. I don't know. Let's 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 see the seriousness of that and be on guard against that. Or is it praise? Like you're putting your praise into a person that can never handle what you're putting upon them. Is it you're wanting it? No, no, no. You're made to reflect God's glory, not to receive God's glory. And here's what we're gonna do this morning to respond. We're gonna take part in communion. You should have come in this morning 
with this cup. And at the top of this cup, there's a place where you can peel off the top to get to the bread. And then the second place where you can get to the juice. Let me encourage you, we're not take, don't take it yet. The band's gonna sing over us. But as they're singing, here's what I wanna ask you to do. I want you in your seat to talk to the Lord. Remember that struggle that I asked you to think about and to pray about? I want you to talk to the Lord. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, we need to confess it. If we need to reorient ourselves to where our living hope is this morning, then we need to do it in this time. That's why we do this, in remembrance of what Jesus has done. He's the only one that is meant to be remembered and to be worshiped. So I wanna encourage you during this time, talk to the Lord, take what you're struggling to him so that when we take of this bread and we take of this cup, we're reminded of where our living hope is. I wanna encourage you to do that during this time.